I want to hear Nick Rivers' pet sounds. <laughs> Welcome to episode of Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. And this month, we have been talking about the parody genre. Before we dive into today's movie, Thomas, can you give us a recap on what we've talked about this month regarding the parody genre? So last week, what we discussed specifically and what kind of makes a good parody is this idea that you have to approach it with a kind of loving idea of making the type of movie that you're parodying it can't just be going out to make fun of something you also have to be trying to make this film fit within that genre which is why we talked about monty python and the holy grail and how much effort they put into making it look like a king arthur movie and which is we also talked a good bit about the more recent spoof films and why they didn't work And maybe that they were a little scatterbrained. Maybe they're too focused on being topical as opposed to making one cohesive film, Uh, which is something we're going to talk about with today's movie, because this one might (laughs) this one. It'll be interesting because this one, some people think falls in one category. Other people think falls in the other category. But um, yeah. and, And, you know, we talked about the idea of a spoof movie being very lovingly made to pay homage to parody one specific genre which is why we also talked about some why some of these movies that are made to make fun of bad movies you're just already starting off on the wrong foot yeah Yeah, like i I think last last week we talked about the movie vampire suck um (laughs) there's another one like like meet the spartans uh you know 300 whether you like it or not is already kind of a ridiculous film so you're just kind of (laughs) setting it well i think the the worst I think what a lot of people point to is is maybe the biggest misfire of that whole era is the uh, the forty one year old virgin who knocked up his girlfriend and felt super bad about it. I forgot about that movie. Yeah. I just know. Uh, yeah, I don't even. Who was in that? Does anyone was anyone um, big in that, or was that just like? A... Yeah, I don't think anybody, anybody <laughs> especially big, was in it. But I think that's that's just like you've obviously lost the point when you are making fun of comedies. Like you can't. Yeah. There's also the big question as to whether the first scary movie was just a failure in the first place because it's making fun of scream which is already making fun of itself yeah which is yeah it's already it's a it's a parody that's taken seriously and that's kind of the big thing too you, you, we talked about that like you you have to kind of love the genre and i think i kind of mentioned how sometimes the movies that are done in a loving way where they are poking fun at it uh, eventually become that exact movie it's like mm-hmm. i think that the, the the modern example i brought was only murders in the building of how that kind of starts off as a parody of true crime podcasts and our obsession with true crime podcast. And then it kind of becomes a true crime, a, a true crime story in a way. Um, or if it's galaxy quest that kind of becomes a star Trek movie and kind of captures everything you love about a star Trek movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, today's movie definitely verges into both things we're talking about mm-hmm. of a specific genre and then also just being topical and covering kind of everything. Yeah. Um. So, so what movie are we talking about today? Today we are talking about 1984's uh, top secret exclamation point. <laughs> uh, top secret is a film is currently streaming on Cinemax, but for yeah. rent, for rent anywhere else, if you don't have access to Cinemax, um, uh, 
In Top Secret, an Elvis-esque rock star is invited to perform at a cultural festival in East Germany, but is thrown into a world of spies when he stumbles upon a secret plot by the evil East German regime to attack NATO. It stars uh, Val Kilmer as Nick Rivers, our Elvis stand-in, in his very yeah. first on-screen role. Uh, Lucy Gutteridge as Hillary, a spy in the Resistance, and his love interest, along with supporting characters including Omar Sharif, Peter Cushing, and Michael <laughs> Goff. And it was written and directed by the group known as Zaz, uh, David Zucker, Jim Abrahams, and Jerry Zucker. So, Brandon, prior to all of this did you did you have a history with i don't know that i i know that you know of my fondness for this movie but i i, I wasn't sure if you had seen it or top secret weirdly we're in 2022 now i think for the first time i watched it was last year in 2021 like ever <laughs> um because we i've mentioned on the show and, and we you did it when you were in la with with us but like we have kind of a movie group where we go through uh all of edgar wright's favorite films is kind of what mm -hmm. we're doing it's like as a group effort and top secret was on that list and it's a it's a short 90 minute watch so i was like i'm gonna knock this one out and i think it was i think i rented it from cinephile video in la and i'll be honest i didn't love it when i watched it and but i kind of saw like what edgar wright liked about mm -hmm. it and then i remember <laughs> it was it was the films to be buried with podcast that he was on. Mm -hmm. And they're like, what's your favorite comedy? And he was like, I'm going to say one that no one would probably say. I was like, he's about to say top. <laughs> I just know it. I know it. And that's exactly what he did. Um, and I was like, wow, I, I'm, I really need to kind of reevaluate this movie in a way. Cause it, it didn't strike me in any way. It felt like, Oh, this is somehow beloved, but I, I didn't know if it kind of aged well. And I will say, coming back to it this time, I had different thoughts on it. Mm -hmm. um, so what was your history with it? That's my very short. This is one your history with it. I we talked last week about, you know, my fondness for Mel Brooks and, and like airplane. I had all the naked gun films on DVD and this one. Giant Dangerously. Yeah. The, Giant Dangerously. I think, um, I think this fits very close to that. In yeah. Line. Yeah. We um, and this one, as we'll talk about later on, is, is not as well known for several reasons but i did not know this one at, at all and i caught it on tv channel surfing one day and i swear it was on tcm i it I'm, probably was yeah i'm not certain but i remember clicking over to it and it was like as he's meeting the the french resistance and there's like a moment when i was just like is this like a world war ii spy movie and then it <laughs> breaks into that gunfight and it just gets so ridiculous and there's the great one of my favorite sight gags in the movie is when um when val kilmer is in the gunfight and they're shooting x's and o's into the window and he's playing tic-tac-toe yeah. with uh with one of the guys yeah. shooting in and i was like oh i have no idea what this is but i know that it's up my alley and i sat and watched the rest of the movie and then like flipped you know was flipping over to tv guide back and forth back in the pre-internet age to like yeah. figure out what movie it was i was watching you know and yeah, yeah. um and fine and so sought it out from blockbuster after that and became yeah. in heavy rotation for me in in like middle school and then completely lost track of it oh, wow it was one i never ended up buying completely lost track of it until like the streaming age and then somebody amazon prime had it a few years ago and i was like mm -hmm. oh i used to love this movie and, and i've since as we'll talk about in the era kind of since then it has had 
even more kind of resurgence with a couple of directors kind of like Edgar Wright coming forward and being like this movie greatly informed my comedy sensibilities. So yeah, been been able to revisit a little bit more since then. And, and it's one of those. It's just I think more so than than Airplane. It's I mean, almost more so than any of the, the, the reason I picked it this week is I think more so than any of the other movies of this era. It has complete and total commitment to its sight gags and just it does this it does. one feels like so many of these movies feel like people just sitting it around does. going like what would be funny right here what what would be funny if we yeah. did it right here but this one feels like and they had a little bit more budget for this one than airplane which we'll talk about but this one feels like no matter what idea they came up with they're like we're gonna find a way to pull that off and and so there's some <laughs> really incredible sight gags in this movie yeah the sight gags it's that's i think that maybe what i was i don't know why if i didn't like grab that the first time but like I noticed this, I'm like, where I feel like every scene is gonna commit to some sort of psych act, or it has it has a, in some case, a visual punchline mm. in a way. A lot of the time, it's a very visual film for comedy. I mean, you know, even just stuff that is so far in the background, you wouldn't think anyone would put the effort into making. It. Like, like how much work? Yeah. How much work do you think went into making the like rubber cheese? For the pizza parlor scene, when all the kids in oh, the yeah, background yeah. are like pulling their slices of uh, pizza yeah, and they're yeah, having yeah. to like that was the one. climb yes, across the it. tables and get all the way across the room because <laughs> none of the cheese will pull apart and all of it is played out of focus in the background. Like yeah, yeah, because they're having like a, a, a not intense conversation but a very important conversation in the foreground and they're just like doing the cheese that's stretching across the room. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's very much. I mean, I, one of my favorite bits. I don't want to jump too far ahead of favorite scenes, but. It's the like uh, him marking off (laughs) (laughs) in the jail cell Mm -hmm. where he's marking off the like the the strikes and you're like, oh, man, he's been there for like almost a month. And and the guy and his manager walks in. He goes, where have you been? I've been here for like 20 minutes. (laughs) And you're just like, (laughs) it's it's the 20 minute kind of kind of tick marks. And I was like, that's kind of great. And and all of that kind of has this like it's not even just a visual gag but it's it's the combination of visual and and dialogue driven mm-hmm. gags in a way it's like it's the it's the mixture of the two punchlines yeah um is what kind of works so well i i have gained more appreciation for it in this viewing than i did originally and also too to go with this like comedy can be hard to watch alone sometimes mm-hmm. Like this, this is the kind of whole other conversation away, but like comedy, it, it, it you kind of need people to be around. So maybe that had something to do with it the first time. And I didn't have anyone this time, but I was, I guess I was more, uh, paying more attention to it because we're covering it for the show. And I, I do think this would play better with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I would probably laugh a lot more than I did not say I didn't laugh, but I would laugh. I would be more. I guess invested in the humor. I think a little bit with with people, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because um, the audience can change things with a comedy. Let's uh, let's dive a little bit into the history of how it got made. So, a little background on uh, Zaz. The Zucker brothers grew up down the street from Jim Abraham's in Shorewood, Wisconsin. So they were lifelong friends. Oh, wow. Uh, and they all attended the University of Wisconsin in Madison together. In 1971, while they were in college, they founded an improv sketch group called Kentucky Fried Theater in Madison. Uh, mm-hmm. The group became a huge hit in Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and after college, they moved it out to L.A. where they continued to enjoy success for about five years. They were running this theater uh, in L.A. 
that was, you know, around the same time as, as groundlings and that sort of stuff, really kind of the rise of sketch comedy in America in 1977, they approached several studios with the idea of making a movie of just putting a bunch of their sketches together to make a movie. So this would have been about two years after Monty Python, which we talked about last week was, you know, really the Holy Grail is really a a sketch movie that just has the cohesiveness of all being uh, medieval night sketches. Um, But everyone turned down the idea saying no one wanted to see a movie made up entirely of sketches. Eventually they were able to self fund it by going out to a couple of producers and they enlisted, enlisted a young director named John Landis to direct it. Mm -hmm. And it released, you know, fairly small, but, but very quick cult success. Yeah. Called the Kentucky fried movie. Have you seen that one? Have you seen that? I I, I, I sought that out when I was, way too young to see it because i was like oh it's the same guys that made airplane and, and <laughs> it's it's definitely a lot worse um yeah, yeah it, 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 that was also when i saw last year during yeah. in 2021 that i was like oh that 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 one i don't think i would like again a second time yeah i'm uh, good I, I didn't i didn't like that one that much yeah, I'm, I'm that good. one felt like it they had like one long sketch and and then it was just like a bunch of mini sketches it felt like mm-hmm. And yeah, that was I was not a big fan. I was actually very it was underwhelming. Yeah, that movie was Well, while they were working on Kentucky Fried Movie. Um, Zaz, I, I don't know how to refer. I'm going to refer to them as like a singular. That's what they Zaz, call themselves. Zaz, so yeah, Zaz, yeah, Zaz is fine. Zaz is fine. Zaz was also working on a script making fun of a movie that they had taped off of TV. They said they used to stay up a lot late at night after the, if especially if they had a live show, they would come home late at night and just watch whatever was showing on the late showing of of a movie and so one night they had randomly taped a late night airing of a disaster film called zero hour and it became tradition for them to just put that tape on at night and crack jokes the whole way through eventually to the point where they just wrote out a full script of their own parody of that movie complete with parodies of the commercials that showed during the the movie (laughs) on the tape they they got to a point where the script was finished they wanted to start showing it around but they were afraid that their script was too close to zero hour because they had literally just redone zero hour with jokes so they actually paid for the rights to zero hour they paid about twenty five twenty five hundred dollars for the rights to the script and started sending that script around to studios who were starting to pay more attention to the cult success of kentucky fried movie which had come out at that point yeah uh, several studios are interested in the script, but most interested was Michael Eisner at Paramount. He's becoming a reoccurring character, it sounds like, in in uh, the show. Well, I've, we've mentioned him a few times. Michael Eisner at Paramount picked up the phone and called his buddy, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and said, <laughs> you got to go find these guys, Zuckers and Abrahams. You got to find them. And so Katzenberg tracked him down and made a bid for Airplane, which is what the script came to be known as. So Paramount fully funded Airplane, which became a critical and commercial success, making $171 million at the box office on a $3.5 million budget. (laughs) And that's $1980. That's insane. Yeah, it's crazy. So after that success, obviously, everybody wanted a piece of Zazz. The problem was they didn't know how to write a movie. (laughs) They're just like, we just co- we just copied someone. <laughs> Jerry Zucker says we were just funny guys who really didn't understand, had no clue about movie structure since they had been sketch comedians first and then basically just copied the plot of Zero Hour with jokes added in. There were so many aspects to writing film that they did not understand. 
Jerry Zucker also says of airplane without the jokes, there's still a story at some moronic level. You care about if the plane lands safety and safely and if the boy and girl get together and that helps the jokes work. But they didn't really know how to write a story at this point. So they were working on stuff for a couple of years. Uh, they the next project they say they pitched to Zaz or the next project that Zaz pitched to Katzenberg they said was so bad that Katzenberg was like this is a joke right guys you're 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 pulling my leg and they were like oh okay yeah sure yeah yeah, yeah we were yeah. um eventually they came up with Police Squad which was a television series that was spoofing cop procedurals but it only ran for six episodes it eventually went on to spawn the the Naked Gun movie franchise but overall was a failure. Finally, one day they're sitting around spitballing ideas and they realized they, ha- they were working on two separate ideas, one concerning World War II spy movies and the other one was a spoof of Elvis movies. And they were just like, you know what? Why don't we just do both at the same time? <laughs> so with those two ideas, they were finally able to come up with a basic plot with most of it coming from the 1944 Hedy Lamarr movie, The Conspirator, uh, with a little peppering of plot from one of the most successful movies at the time, Blue Lagoon, which we will discuss later uh so they took that back to katzenberg he said all right yeah let's do it so with the studio finally on board they moved forward with casting their casting director recommended seeing a play in new york called slab boys that was getting a lot of attention for featuring several hot young talents so zaz went to go see slab boys whose cast included sean penn kevin bacon and val kilmer (laughs) talk about a show what about cat what a cast and what year is this? What year? So this is eighty, probably eighty three. Yeah, probably around eighty three. Take. Yeah. Yeah. So ba- so bacon. If bacon's in it, that means bacon's done Animal House. He hasn't done Footloose yet, has mm-hmm. he? Is Footloose is, is that around? Right? Okay. I was yeah. I was talking to my mom about this last night. I was like, Kevin Bacon's had a very interesting career. Like just the kind of ebbs and flows mm-hmm. of what he's kind of become. Uh, and Penn at this point. It's probably right when Fast Times is about to happen or has happened, right? Because Fast Times is in the same exact period. Um, Fast Times is 82, yeah, so this was probably 82, like... 82, so it's right after, yeah. right? Yeah, it's right after. So he's probably the biggest guy. Wow, that's that's a trio of Yeah, and then Fo- right Footloose would, would, would have been the next year. So maybe the casting director for Footloose was sitting in the audience with, uh, with Zaz that night. Um, they're just yes, foot, and foot, Footloose is a Paramount movie too. By the way, hey, there you go. So that makes everybody sense. went to go see Slab yeah. Boys. Uh, yeah, but anyway, the team the team loved Kilmer. That's who they were going to see, and they invited him audition to audition. Kilmer was a recent Juilliard graduate who had never had an on screen appearance before, but he was making waves in the New York stage drama scene. He was super excited to audition for Zaz as he had grown up in Los Angeles, going to the Kentucky Fried Theater uh, oh, as wow. a kid. He said. He said he must have gone over 50 times and once for his birthday party, he asked his father to rent out the theater for a private live show. So big fan. Okay. Big fan. So Kilmer arrived to the audition fully dressed and styled as Elvis and did a couple of songs. And oh, right away, Zaz knew they had the guy. That's, that's what he did with the doors, too, I believe. <laughs> where he... <laughs> I'm Jim Morrison. Well, then he would play, go on to play Elvis later as well. Um Oh, yeah. So to round out the cast, uh, Zaz kept to a strategy that they'd used to great success in Airplane, which was casting well-known character actors who rarely do comedy for their supporting roles. So that leads to Omar Sharif getting (laughs) compacted into a car and picking up dog shit. 
Michael Goff, who most people would know as Alfred in the Tim Burton Batman movies, and Peter Cushing uh, rounding out the supporting roles. Uh, So then they were underway. They shot most of this in England uh, on the Pinewood studio lot, as well as, you know, skeet surfing was shot on those, even though it looks like a classic California beach. Those are the the shores of England. (laughs) So speaking of skeet surfing, Brandon, what are some of your favorite scenes in this movie? Um, There's several, I I guess. Let me start with my favorite scene first, because I think it's so inventive and, and that's the Swedish bookstore scene mm, with yep. Peter Cushing. Like that's one where I watched, I'm watched the first time. And then this time I was like, how do you do this? Like, the, like just the, the, because the, 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 the whole thing with the, with the, with that scene is that Kilmer and Lucy got a rich place. Hillary, they go to see the, go, they go to the Swedish bookstore to get, get information. Cause it's the whole espionage stuff. And he's speaking in sweet Swedish and they're all speaking Swedish and it's English subtitled and, but it feels like you're listening to like a tape recorder being rewound basically. And you're hearing the, like all that mm-hmm. kind of like speaking. And I'm like, wow, well, how do they do that? And then you, I, you don't realize until kind of the end of the scene that it's been playing in reverse the entire time. Mm-hmm. Like they're, cause their physical movements start to kind of change and you're like, Oh, that's ingenious because it doesn't feel like it's played backwards for about half the scene. Yeah. Like it's really three fourths the scene. It really is again, talking about the, the punchline of the, of a joke at the end of the, in the scene, visually visual gag It's the, the, the books are kind of like that, but the books are odd. And then all of a sudden they're like jumping up in the air mm-hmm. going up a, 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 a fire. Yeah. Basically. I love like, the oh. way they, they play it out slowly where they're, you know, at first, yeah, at first you have absolutely no idea. And then they no start, idea. they no start idea. walking around the desk and you're like, Oh, they're moving a little weird. And then they start kind of rubbing it. Once you realize it, then they start rubbing it in your face. So they've got like Val Kilmer the throwing books. the books back up, like up three shelves into the perfectly yeah. into their spots. And then they, yeah, and then they go up the pole, and you're like, oh my god, they're just now they're just rubbing it in our faces that they pulled this off. <laughs> but yeah, that's the kind of that exactly is the kind of sensibility in this movie where it's like, I feel like most other movies, if you don't have these guys right at this moment in their career with like this yeah. amount of money, that you if you're just sitting around in a room in like a writer's room, and somebody throws <laughs> this idea out, and then you go, nah, that, that'd be funny, but no. like we're not going to do it, you know. Or do you, like who even follows that thread to being like, yeah, you know, Swedish kind of sounds like English played backwards. And yeah. then it just turns into like, we're going to fly in Peter Cushing and just make him do this one scene where he has to walk backwards for the whole scene. For the whole scene. And, and yeah. And, and talk. Yeah. That was what was in the Ebert's review where he said, oh yeah, people know like Swedish sounds like English backwards. I was like, I didn't know that was a thing. When did that <laughs> become a thing? Um, but no, I, I think just in terms of direction, that is such a a brilliant scene of how they do it because it, it it's it doesn't feel again it, it it's a well crafted scene and a lot of it's done like in, in like a I think it's, I don't know if it's a one take it feels like it's a one take mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken it or is it's pretty yeah. close to yeah no it is so like it's it's well it's incre- it's well blocked and you're kind of, you're probably like too busy reading the subtitles in a way to fully register the the movements that they're doing early on is the thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I think, and again, to get Peter Cushing, who at this point is mostly known for, well, it's coming off of, he's already done Star Wars at this point. So he's, mm-hmm. he's, he's, he's kind of more in the public consciousness in terms of America, 
but like he's he's a hammer guy. He's he's yeah. he's Van Helsing. He's all these different things. Um, he's mostly known for horror, and then he just pops up in this one just for one scene and does this, mm-hmm. and it's incredible. But yeah, that's one of my favorite scenes. What about you? What's one of yours? All right, I'm gonna go back and and talk about skeet shooting, yeah. skeet surfing. That's fine. Tell us skeet, skeet surfing. Yeah. So. Yeah, so we're introduced to this movie through like a spy sequence where we meet Omar Sharif on this train. They've got a great couple of like kind of like Bond type jokes on top of this train. And then we meet the kind of the evil East Germans. And then they introduce this idea of like a rock and roll star coming into it. And then it's just like, boom, we're in a 60s beach movie. And it's this Beach Boys song (laughs) called Skeet Surfing. (laughs) about how all the teens are surfing and shooting skeet at the same time and yeah it's one of those it's just another one of those things that like somebody came up with you know this dumb idea about skeet surfing and they proceeded to (laughs) shoot basically a whole music video the all the opening credits play out over this where they've got actors out surfing and shooting shotguns And it's amazing. Yeah, and what's great again, like you said, music video. Kilmer's not even in this scene. No. Like no one is in this scene that's big. It's just extra. It's just extras, and it's such a way to. It's such a hard left from that espionage sequence mm-hmm. right before, and you're just like, "What is this movie?" Is basically what happens. Yep. And and then later, you know, Diner or Day would parody it with James Bond on a, on a surf. <laughs> right. Yeah. But yeah, it's a fantastic scene. I, I think visually it's great i think i think lyrically it's great um and again just it yeah it's it's and right then it's the contrast of the two things of the espionage movie and then kind of your elvis movie you know elvis did kind of beach movies not to the extent of like annette funicello and like frankie uh frankie avalon but like it's it's you, you see the two the two type of genres mm-hmm in play in the first five, 10 minutes or so. Yeah. Um, without any of our major characters really being introduced no. <laughs> yet is, is the thing. But we do have, we do have Val Kilmer singing. He, uh, did all of his, he is singing, did all of his singing I, for this was, movie. That was my question. Uh, I figured out when I watched the, 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 the credits of it, but like, I was wondering, like, is he actually singing all these mm-hmm. songs? And he is, he is. And he, and there, and, there, and he, he captures the, the time period fairly well in terms of uh, uh song wise yeah because he, he does a couple different they have him do a couple different styles of kind of pop music yeah, you do. know he does yeah. beach boys he does some crooning he does like a little rich he does tutti fruity uh yeah so yeah and he, elvis he, yeah it's, and, it's yeah. really pretty impressive yeah for, yeah it, i mean th- this movie really is like we can talk about the visual gags and all that but honestly kilmer what works that kilmer really commits to it yeah yeah, I think I think because he this movie is so outlandish that if you don't have an actor of his capability who fully commits to like, yeah, I'm just going to be this is going to be this type movie. I'm going to commit. I'm going to make every choice seem as like dramatic as possible. It feels like it's going to land. I mm-hmm. think that's that's what and I think that's what really helps this film hold up is his performance. Mm-hmm. Do the tears on your pillow. Roll down as you turn Do they short out the blanket And make the sheets burn Is your heart filled with pain 
will you come back again? Shop at Macy's and love me tonight. Who would have thought Omar Sharif would be would be up for something like this? <laughs> That's what I put. I put in my notes. So I was like, man, Omar Sharif's. I forgot he's in this film. Um, and he's so again, he's so serious. And like, I mean, I mean, having him and that may go into another scene of just like him essentially being a car at one point <laughs> in this movie. The guy who's in Lawrence of Arabia is a car, like yeah. is is a Mercedes car. Also, it's this this was also scored by Maurice. Scored Charles, by Maurice. So there you go. Watching this, I, I was watching. I was like, Maurice Jarre composed this. If people don't know, it's Maurice Jarre, a famous composer, where he composed most of David Lean's movies, including uh, Lawrence of Arabia, but also composed most of Peter Weir's early movies mm-hmm. in the 80s with Dead Poet Society and Witness. And you're just like, he's doing this movie <laughs> in the middle of all that. Yep. And I think that, again, to go with them, like casting, not just casting actors who don't do comedies but getting a composer who's like who does massive epics basically to do this elvis espionage movie basically yeah i think yeah i think sharif's great in the car scene i think he's also great in like the the, he has a scene in which he's supposed to be kind of exchanging intel with another spy who's undercover (laughs) as a as a gag like as a prank salesman so anytime somebody walks by to cover for themselves he has to like pretend to, to sell him a, a new prank toy and so it's just like you're getting all these these little pieces of exposition interspersed with like exploding cigars and and you know backfiring whipped cream cans yeah. and, and then again i love the 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 punchline of that or the the ending beat of that scene he goes oh you forgot your your fake dog poo he's like <laughs> i don't have fake dog poo <laughs> All right, I got I got a couple more. Uh, one, yeah, I got one big one. One I love that is just a great parody in itself, and it's not a huge moment in the film, but it's they're they're making fun of this idea of in movies when like two people meet on the dance floor and everyone just knows the choreography automatically. Yeah, yeah. So when yeah. when Nick and Hillary meet for the first time, it's out on the dance floor, and they're at first they're just doing this kind of like basic choreography, and then it just gets more and more complex and ridiculous. Yeah. And everyone on the dance floor is doing it. And it plays out, you know, while they're 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 having dialogue, they're having their kind of like whatever the spy version of a meet cute is, you know, when they're like, oh she needs she needs a cover and I need a cover and um yeah and just the whole time it's getting like more and more and more ridiculous the dance moves that they're doing i mean that whole dance hall sequence i love like Mm -hmm. if you had to like kind of pick a big chunk of the movie that's kind of my favorite part because as a as a whole kind of sequence because you not you don't just have that you have the dance hall sequence when they first meet um you have that leads into him going up and singing tutti frutti Mm-hmm. right after that and i love the bit where it's like because they're in, they're in east germany and i also find it funny is that this this is now an outdated thing of east germany west germany but like east germany is they're, they're kind of like it feels like they're trying to become like like the the fourth reich basically yeah. like they're mm-hmm. trying to continue the nazi regime um but they're announcing like this probably very traditional german singer and because they're not saying the name. So Val Kilmer just thinks like, oh, it's me. I, I was told mm-hmm. to do this. Like I, my manager said I have to sing if they want me to sing. And so he goes in front of all these kind of old white people and sings Tutti Fruity. 
and it turns the entire like old German like the old German band like on violins are trying to keep up mm-hmm. playing Tutti Fruity. I think is I think is great. Um, but yeah, I th- again, and all of his sequence, a lot of his musical numbers, Kilmer's are pretty big. Like I said, it's the dance, the big dance scene that he has with Hillary. Um, he the Tutti Fruity scene is very big in terms of of, of what's doing uh, choreography wise. Um, and then the same with the diner scene later where it's a full on parody of an Elvis movie. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I think his, his musical performances are actually really good. And the dance hall sequence as a, as a big hole, I think it's just a great kind of good 10 minute section of the film. Thank you. That was very kind of you. My pleasure. I was looking for someone to dance with. You're an American. That's right. My uncle was born in America. Oh, really? But he was one of the lucky ones. He managed to escape in a balloon during the Jimmy Carter presidency. I bet he's got a lot of great stories. Yes. He would tell me about all the large houses and expensive cars (laughs) and how the young people waste their time watching television and listening to rock and roll music. What's wrong with television? Not all television. MASH was okay, and the old Mary Tyler Moore show. It just seems like the young people of America take their freedom for granted. Now, wait a minute. I don't think you're being fair. You know, my history class won't spend an entire week in Philadelphia. Maybe so. You can talk about freedom all you want. But still, you don't know what it's like to have to fight for it. There's two that I want to talk about real quick that just, as a grown man who appreciates the subtleties of comedy... There are two things in this film that I that I giggle through the entirety, and that is one the ballet dancers with giant cod pieces, <laughs> and two the cow with boots on is just hilarious. <laughs> so there's there's a sequence when they're when they're at the ballet and all the male ballet dancers have these like come out with these huge cod pieces stuffed into their their tights, and you yeah. think that's the joke. But yeah. then it turns. But then it starts fu- functioning into the choreography up to the point where you get ballet the, the the female dancers making it you know all the way across the stage just by hopping from one cod piece to the other. <laughs> just some incredible wire work just to pull off this one day. <laughs> well, like, all the positions they're holding them in are also like very sexual based. Like the way mm-hmm. they're like holding all the ballerinas is what it is. Um, yeah, the calip boots. I, I want to go with that because the calip boots. What I find so funny is like it it commits to like because it's two two spies are basically mm-hmm. going undercover uh as a cow to get to a specific like generator to turn off the generator let the let the the, the spies kilmer and his group in there and what's great is that like, they actually make it a cow yeah like, they, they, they show you they like, show you the suit and they're talking about who's going to get in the front yeah. who's going to get in the back so you're like okay we're going to see these two guys in a cow suit and then it just cuts yeah, to a bit, cow yeah. <laughs> with spots yeah and with boots and like because they could have done this big elaborate like cow suit and like oh yeah they're just stupid it's like no it's it's just a cow it's just a cow and it was probably in all honesty harder to make it with a real cow than it would have been to put somebody in a cow suit they're just like no one's gonna believe it let's 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 commit (laughs) to the bit of making it a real cow um yeah i think so so and i'll bring this up now with this going off the cow or going off of some of the stuff we're talking about uh with this movie it it is the elvis movies which i can talk a long time about um 
and then it is the espionage movies. But it is a film that has a lot of different things in it mm-hmm. in terms of what it's parroting. And that's that's we're talking about the early the uh kind of the early beginnings of what we were talking about as this trend in the two thousands of these of these parody movies. Like there's moments where it feels very Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm-hmm. Like towards the end and the, the kind of the, the car chase. There's moments where it feels like it's trying to be Casablanca, which is still kind of a it's an espionage movie like adjacent in a way because it deals mm-hmm. with spies and stuff like that. But it's Blue Lagoon or whatever. It's 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 the Grapes of Wrath speech at the end when they're like leaving or like there's a lot of different kind of genres and movies from different decades coming into play here. Mm. So it, it definitely feels like a lot of different things. Yeah. I don't know if that's really been done to that extent the way this is doing it here, if that if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like airplane, like I said, airplane's a very specific thing. This feels like it's all over the board. Well, it's it's funny it's with, referencing. With, with airplane. I read in an interview with Saz where they said um airplane, you know, it was almost entirely just these disaster movies they were sticking with, and they said a lot of people came up to us afterwards because there's this scene when when the two main characters have we're, we're seeing a flashback to when they they met for the first time and they're on a beach mm-hmm. and they're like kissing and the waves come up and like crash over them and like pull them back out to <laughs> sea or whatever. And they uh-huh. said a bunch of people came up to us and they're like, oh, that was a really funny parody of From Here to Eternity. And none of them had seen From Here to Eternity. They just thought <laughs> that would be funny. <laughs> But they, they definitely acknowledged that they were bringing we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit later on. But for better or worse, they were bringing in, you know, more more stuff kind of outside of their two main ideas, which you, you mentioned Casablanca, which is interesting. They they did say the conspirator was their biggest inspiration, but they specifically said they wanted to make it about the like World War Two movies that were being made during World War Two. So Casablanca yeah. would would fit really. There's something I wanted to say. You don't have to say anything, but I want to. You must know that when we were together last night, I had no idea that Nigel was still alive. And now that you know? Oh, Nick, his work is so important to him. I must stay with him. He pleaded with me not to leave. I just hope you realize that's all he means to me. Oh, I don't know what's right any longer. I only wish I didn't love you so much. So yeah, some onset life. So yeah, I said they got a bigger budget for this film because of the success of Airplane. They did get more yeah. allowances from the studio. I mean, it wasn't a whole lot. This Airplane was three point five million. They made this one for eight million, uh, and supposedly they came in a million under budget. So wow, <laughs> as far oh. as the the kind of <laughs> production value of the gas they pulled off for that. Yeah, and a million under budget for that time is a lot of money that you're coming in under. Is the yeah. thing. That's a bit. But this increase in, in allowances led to some more involved comedic set pieces. We talked about the mm-hmm. um, cow actor, the backwards bookshop scene. and the, uh, <laughs> But some of the other ones include the moving train platform. When you think that the train's yeah. moving, but it's actually the whole pl- station is moving. A submarine crashing through a concrete wall and a very intensive underwater fight scene that we will discuss later. Uh, yeah, that was also one, one a scene I thought about bringing up because that's yeah. that is a great scene with what they're doing. So talking a little bit about that Blue Lagoon parody, they decided to incorporate recently in response to 
someone asking about that scene, Jim Abraham said, especially after Airplane, we started to figure out that the rules of comedy beyond just our own instincts of does that seem funny or not. And one of the rules we came up with was if we're going to parody a specific scene from a movie, it needs to work on its own. And if you get the fact that it's a parody of a specific movie, well, that's kind of frosting on the cake. So you you and I kind of talked about that last week when they were when we were talking about, uh, you know, some of the more recent ones. And their their justification here yeah. was they needed a backstory for Hillary and the torch, um, Nigel. And that's just what came to mind. So it still functions as part of the story. I, I still don't know. I, that that scene kind of bumps for me. We can talk about it a little bit more and what didn't work. That one does kind of pull me out of it, but we'll talk about it a little bit more. Uh, yeah. So despite entering the project, I decided to work with each other. Zaz and Kilmer had a pretty rocky relationship on set. They now speak very highly of each other, but Zaz, they all remember being frustrated with Kilmer's quote unquote actor's temperament on set. <laughs> Kilmer has said that at the time he was fresh out of acting school in the New York theater scene and he was just really frustrated with the directing team's focus on comedy over character or story. Uh, Kilmer said, I love the boys and their comedy, but it took me 25 years to enjoy not knowing what is going to happen on a set. My acting training is formal and I was fresh out of Hamlet land and Juilliard school. The boys always (laughs) wanted me to have more fun, but I wanted to be good and I took it all way too seriously. I have a message to young actors. When your bosses tell you to have more fun, believe them and do it. It doesn't happen that often. And the following... So it sounds like things were a little rough on set, but but they've since yeah. kind of made up. The, the following is a transcript of an interview with Abrahams and the Zuckers concerning the problems with Val and his characters. So David Zucker uh-huh. said, uh, I will say in his defense, that was a tough character to play. And in retrospect, when Jerry and Jim and I have discussed this, we've thought... Well, gee, who was this character? We didn't really write him a great character, so we assume a lot of the responsibility. Jerry Zucker yeah. said, it's always difficult as an actor just to play a guy. And here's another case where we just didn't understand filmmaking. <laughs> <laughs> Jim Abraham said, we meet Val Kilmer in Top Secret, and he's kind of this arrogant rock and roll star. He has no real problem that needs solving. Z- Zucker then said, in retrospect, that character really doesn't have an arc at all. Ted Stryker, an airplane, had an arc. which jim abrahams replied clearly we missed the whole message from airplane that your lead character needs to have a character yeah (laughs) jerry zucker said we just didn't do a good job of storytelling and movie structure we broke a lot of rules but not always in good ways so (laughs) they've done a lot of realizing since then that you know maybe they didn't set val kilmer up for success but i mean i think he succeeds in spite of it but Pure, do, purely purely based off talent yeah. for, from Val Gilmer is a thing. I do like that they're looking back on it because you can see interviews from like not long after it happened where they're like, man, that guy's just an asshole. Like you never know what you're going to get on set. And now looking back on it, they're like, wow, we just kind of took this kid who was like brand new and we're like, just be we funny. We kind of dropped we're, the ball on yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, just, we kind of dropped the ball on just him. Just be funny. Yeah. You have nothing to go off of. Um, yeah. So as mentioned earlier, this movie featured some of the most elaborate set pieces they had ever attempted. The Peter Cushing bookstore sequence took about 17 takes. Uh, The underwater fight scene was shot in the deep sea tank at the Pinewood lot in London. It was shot in 10 to 15 second increments with divers directly off camera with oxygen for the cast. Oh, wow. Kilmer enjoyed the process so much training for that scene, though, that he got scuba certified during the training process. (laughs) And he, he said the hardest part of that sequence was just not laughing because you would lose, you know, if you took in your your allotted oxygen from the diver and then got into the scene and started laughing you would lose all your oxygen <laughs> have to reset 
cracking is a lot worse when you're underwater than it is. Uh, oh, yeah. It's life or death. Scene. Yeah. So some aftermath for the film. After test screenings of the film, Paramount forced the directors to cut the film down from two hours to 90 minutes. Oh, wow. So not a lot of that lost 30 minutes has ever been seen. I know I know one of the gags that Zaz has talked about later was that the scene when he's about to be executed by firing squad and the, and it's up to the little old lady to answer the phone for his pardon. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was like much longer where, <laughs> where the phone started ringing and then the commander of the firing squad t- would tell them to like put their guns down. And so and then the phone would stop ringing and then she started to walk away and then the commander had them raise the oh, guns man. up again and then the phone would start ringing again and they did that like three times. Uh, so, you know, maybe for the best that they cut it down to a tight yeah. 90. <laughs> Paramount was also reportedly worried about the release of the film. They pushed it back a month to keep it from competing with the late May, early June films of 1984. You know, you know, it was dropping in late May, early June of 84. Um. 84 is that ghostbusters ghostbusters yeah beverly hills cop is probably that year too oh i didn't have that one down maybe uh yeah i think beverly hills cop's 84 just too. like within a three-week run in late may first of june is you, temple of, is temple of, temple of doom that year? temple of doom yeah. was late may ghostbusters okay. and gremlins were all oh yeah right there and um so they pushed it back into mid-june because they were worried about competing with those but they still went up against karate kid and cannonball run Two the weekend that it came out <laughs> oh wow the Karate Kid one's a big one. Well, I mean, that's both. That's kind of targeting a lot of their audience in both those films. Though some people were hotly anticipating the release of the first film project for Zaz since Airplane. Public opinion had kind of soured on them because Airplane 2 was not good. The problem was they weren't attached to Airplane 2 in any way. But, yeah, you know, like, you know, the sequel. Yeah. You know how people are with movies there. You know, if you put up on the advertisement, these are the guys behind Airplane. Everybody's like, ah, but Airplane 2 was bad. And it's just like <laughs> we didn't have anything to do with that. That's all. That's all. The thing is, that's kind of funny, too. Well, like side thing on that, like how Spielberg has a career after Jaws 2, 3 and 4. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, seriously, those I actually kind of like Jaws, too. But like, it's still just like, man, how that happened? <laughs> Where like, that's a, a whole franchise based off his work yeah. that he's not involved in afterwards. Yeah, that doesn't hurt him at all. And the delayed release also led to some press speculation that the movie was going to be dead on arrival. So by the time mm-hmm. the movie came out, you had bad press, you had the backlash against Airplane Two, and you had just a very hot summer. Specifically, this is a weird time, you know, eighty four with specifically Ghostbusters, but also kind of Gremlins you've got this kind of ushering in of a new era of like genre comedy. So it really kind of represented a moving away from the kind of sillier stuff. This is Ghostbusters. I think represent this huge thing. And like, this can be this like high concept comedy. Yeah. This can be this fun family adventure, horror film. That's also funny. And, and so, you know, I think this represented a big shift, but and you're all, and you're also saying I, I don't know this is a little bit later but like I think in '84 it's like you're saying the the addition of the PG-13 rating coming mm-hmm. in yeah too. Temple of Doom so like yeah the industry is in the middle of, yeah is 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 an influx at some point um because so, I think Red Red Dawn is the first one that it's PG-13 and I think that is um '84 I think I assume yeah it's it's end of the summer in '84 so it's this is right when like everything's kind of changing in several ways within mm-hmm. the industry it's a big year it's a big year for film so yeah and despite really pretty incredible reviews from critics like very very well reviewed film uh including roger ebert and vincent canby at the new york times it 
did not do well. I, I love this quote from Canby. He opens his his review by <laughs> giving these like very well written like impressionistic descriptions of a couple of yeah. scenes. And I love he says a white cow covered with large black polka dots ambling across <laughs> a soggy field in the manner of a beast that knows that there are a thousand tomorrows wearing rubber <laughs> boots. I love that cow so much. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the film was chalked up as a bomb by Hollywood. It still made made about twenty million dollars on their eight million dollar budget. So, I mean, not not what technically what we would consider a bomb, but yeah, it was no it was no but, airplane. But compar- yeah, compared to airplane, that's yeah. that's like yeah, I think Paramount's like we're expecting like if you make 80 million dollars like cool you guys you didn't match airplane but like that's a big that's a huge hit for us Mm -hmm. but 20 is like eh. (laughs) like that's a small hit compared to airplane yeah so for many years zaz all kind of look back on this movie as as one of their biggest failures uh jerry zucker once said it's always like a poor stepchild like oh top secret the bomb and if you go back and look at interviews with them, the group can be very critical of it. Uh, I think they've come to realize a lot about, you know, where they were at as far as skill wise while they were making this movie. We've already pulled some quotes where they were just like, we knew nothing about writing movies. Uh, <laughs> yeah. They they often admit that their lack of story structure and character arcs may have poorly affected the film and Val's performance. Also, in every interview you read, all three of the men say if they could go back and cut one thing out of the film. It would be introducing Nick Rivers by having him learn, is your daughter 18 in German? They all yeah, hate that yeah. that is like your intro to the character. Because he, he's never, he's never, he never has that personality that again. Yeah. Like it's never, it's never that way again as a character. Mm-hmm. And that's one of those things where you can see, you know, that they thought, oh, this would be a funny joke. And they didn't give any thought to what does this say about his character? Because they, yeah. these guys just didn't. They didn't really know about characterization at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you got to think too. It's like you're hearing him. He's a rocker, beach rocker, and and it's like he's Elvis. And also, there's even there's also stuff with Elvis with that too. You go into like it's very much like he he's. It makes him sound like a skis to begin mm-hmm. with, like yeah. as as his opener. Yeah, that's a fair point. Well, like many 1980s comedies, the film enjoyed a cult following on VHS, followed by DVD, and has been championed by many current filmmakers who grew up on it. Uh, two of the biggest champions of this film are Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who are huge, huge fans of this movie and credit it as a giant influence on the gag a minute sensibilities of their films like the Lego movie and the 21 Jump Street films. Uh, Edgar Wright also, as we said, considers this film a personal favorite. And I, I really think you can see this movie specifically, his inf- the influence on his earlier in his career when he was doing comedies, his commitment to these like elaborate comedic set pieces. Yeah. This, yeah, this feels like Cornetto trilogy in a yeah. way. I, 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 there, there's, there's DNA to it. That's something I mean. he really made his name on earlier in his career was directing for comedy, which not a lot of people were doing yeah. at his time. And I mean, not a lot of people were doing it in 84 and, and this movie is one, is a movie that is directed for comedy uh and like we were saying just this kind of idea of like if this is going to help the joke we're going to go out of our way to make it happen and i, I do think he, yeah. he yeah like you said i think he does that a lot in his cornetto movies yeah and yeah, I, remember, I remember too going off kind of the aftermath of it i, I remember in that interview he did uh on films we buried with uh he talked about how he did a screening of it at new bev new beverly mm-hmm. in, in in la tarantino's theater 
And I think it was one of the Zuckers who like who he's friends with was just like, oh, that movie was a bomb. Like, it's going to just be dead. Like, no one's going to go to it. It's like it's what And I think he got him to actually go to the Q&A. I think some of the, I don't know if all of them went to the Q&A, but some of them did. And he said how just like it was a packed house and it was just like a raucous crowd mm-hmm. of like so like loving the movie and how it was like kind of like kind of helped heal the wounds a little bit. Like, oh, it's found an audience. Mm-hmm. all these years later and, and i think too like if it was on something else besides cinemax i do wonder yeah <laughs> if that if there if, if there's a little bit more of a following to it mm-hmm. in the streaming world yeah yeah I, I i remember that story from edgar Wright. it's also specifically i think one of them came to that screening but in uh in tw- 2014 the san francisco sketch fest organized a screening and and all of them came to it and and in interviews since they've all kind of credited that experience as being what really renewed the movie in their eyes. Um, Jerry Zucker said, David and Jim and I used to joke after Top Secret came out that this is the movie they'll show at colleges and we'll come out in our canes and berets and they'll applaud us like maybe this was our duck soup or something. To which <laughs> David Zucker said, airplane is a night at the opera and Top Secret is duck soup. Oh, wow. <laughs> People like duck soup more usually. So there you go. Uh all right, so what worked in Top Secret? I mean, the two the two major things, as we're saying, is is the commitment to the visual gag, and how they direct how they direct for comedy visually, mm-hmm. and then it's Kilmer. Yeah, I think those are the top two things that work in this film. Is that uh, that kind of perfect marriage of the two? Is that Kilmer? As I said, it, and as they're kind of saying too, if you have someone else in this role that character becomes almost forgettable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Kilmer brings something out of it that I don't know if any actor could have done. Yeah. Yeah. There's not, it's, it is not, a, there's not much substance to the role. So you got to coast by on star power and Val Kilmer has star power. 100%. In his first film. Yeah. In his first film. <laughs> it's insane. So yeah, it's like, I think he does. And it kind of like sets him up to do like real genius. I think probably like a year or so later, mm-hmm. I think is what it is. She's also like, incredible. Like scene stealing, like insanely yeah, good. In that. Yeah. He's, he's fantastic in that film. He, he's able to capture that kind of old school vibe, like the Elvis stuff mm-hmm. in this kind of new school era. And this 80s, it's, it's a mixture of the 80s. 80, there's a weird period in the 80s where like it's a, it's a, it's 80s, but also kind of retro 50s and 60s. And mm-hmm. somehow Kilmer is able to kind of capture that yeah um in his performance and then yes the visual gags i think too i i don't know of very many films in general that commit to it as hard as this movie does yeah and it pulls it off and it pulls it off yeah absolutely i I think this one and we can talk about a little bit more in in what didn't work i think because this Mm -hmm. one is so they, they cast a, a much wider net for this movie. And I think this might be as far as movie spoofs go. I think this might be as wide as I would like one of these and still be successful overall. Uh, sometimes that works to its detriment, but sometimes that gives us truly amazing sequences like the old West fight underwater. Like, yeah. you know, if, if they, if we were in one of these more disciplined ones like we've talked about like monty python or like i don't even know that mel brooks would have done something like this although blazing saddles does get a little bit into that but yeah just the the idea of i'm sure it went down like what if they fight underwater and then it turned into like 
what if we stage it like an old saloon fight and then it turned in and the way it's it's done is so great because it just kind of slowly at first they're just underwater and then like you start mm-hmm. getting all these little pieces of a wild west saloon until at the end there's all these yeah. guys playing cards at the table and he like picks his hat up and, and walks yeah. out the swinging doors it's just fully <laughs> turned into a wild west movie by the end of the sequence and it's just that kind of stuff that i think gives this one this energy of like let's just go for yeah. it and it's a very yeah. very thin line where you go between this and epic movie as far as like yeah <laughs> let's just go for it and and i do think i i still think like we've talked about i do i still do think like love is is weirdly the the important factor here <laughs> you know <laughs> i don't i don't think any of these movies i don't think this this movie sets out to go oh those elvis movies are terrible you know uh, no yeah I, I and i think i think it doesn't do that i think that's I I think it, it it again those numbers, no matter what they if it's shop at Macy's or whatever, they are ridiculous to an extent. But they're never like, again, it's never like you said, it's not a cynical view of it. Basically, mm-hmm. um, it never full and I think it's like it never full on, uh, like because the the plot or there's not really a plot, but the story doesn't really go with an Elvis story. It's just mm-hmm. it's 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 what what if we put Elvis in an espionage movie is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think that's, like I said, I think it is the, the love of those two, those two genres that allows it to kind of carry on in some way. Uh, so another thing I think worked is I, I think their, their method of casting serious actors. I mean, even down to Val Kilmer, essentially. Yeah. 100% yeah. still works here. I think it, I think, they're never you're never going to be able to point to a better success of that than leslie nielsen but omar sharif is a blast uh peter cushing is incredible and in, in what we do get to see him in and then like you said you know val kilmer's playing it straight for the most part yeah uh and that that's all that's all a lot of fun no i agree one thing i'll bring up here mm-hmm. the credits because i didn't bring <laughs> some favorite scenes the credits did you read the credits i i i had the credits in our in our film facts but we can we can get into some of your okay. favorites now if you want to i've got a list well of i just them. love the they love the sequence of clapper puller puller clapper 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 flipper flapper haberdasher <laughs> like that's 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 one run yeah that's one run there's the hey diddle diddle as the job position and the the person cat in the fiddle yeah um there is a third man reference as well like i think there's a lot of yeah that was those are the ones i caught. My, my other favorite one is the role is credited as four ease and then the person in the role is a jolly good fellow uh, <laughs> what, what i love about the clapper puller puller clapper all those it's like the general names are uh, they're regular like the, the names of the people who work on it's like like one's jane thomas mm-hmm. and one's edward davis and you're just like you could easily, if you're not paying attention, like you could easily not realize that the credits are, are part of the bit, mm-hmm. a part of the joke. Yeah. Um, the, this space for rent is one section of the credits I thought was great. Yeah. Yeah. Supposedly Paramount fought them really, really hard on those because <laughs> you can do like joke credits, but you're not supposed to mix them in with the union credits. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> That's a, the credit sequence section is very serious business. So what? didn't work here okay i have several things mm-hmm. i think the, they kind of said it the big things they said 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 best is that they didn't have an idea of what to do with structure and plot yeah 
because when I when I came into this movie, I always assumed he was a rock star who is like a spy undercover. Mm-hmm. Or something along that or or he gets involved in the spy ring very early on. He doesn't get involved fully until much later into the movie. Yeah. He's kind of always just like there. And that's what I was thinking this time. I was just like, what are we building to? Because like we don't really know what he wants in this thing. We don't really know what he's going to get out of this. He's just kind of there stuck in this espionage plot. Mm-hmm. But doesn't really get involved until over halfway, directly involved until like halfway through the movie. It's all through Hillary's character that he kind of is involved in some way. So I never know where we're going to, like where where we're building to. And I think, I know this movie doesn't, I don't know if this type of movie needs all that, but like when you think of Holy Grail, you know their goal is to seek the Grail. That is what mm-hmm. they want to do. So we're just, we know, we have an end goal in mind. Will we get there? Who knows? And we don't. This we're kind of, I think, I think the New York Times article talks about how it kind of like wanders aimlessly in moments. And it does that in this film. Yeah. It, 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 it Because it doesn't have those, those structural things worked out. So that was my big thing. Cause like the ending feels abrupt because of that. Mm. It just kind of ends where it's like, we're getting on the plane together. The end. And you're like, Oh, Okay, yeah, cause that's, we didn't a, that's know, another one we didn't, that they said uh I've, I've read a couple interviews where they're like i would love to go back and, and reshoot the ending like we just had no idea yeah. how to end it i think one of the ideas one of the ideas they even said is even if we could somehow get in to manipulate it where like the plane takes off and then we just pan to a fireplace like they're just like we just need something some button on the end to make it a joke <laughs> yeah because they have the fireplace pan i think like they do it twice when they're when they're the, they do it tw- and, and yeah, the Weimar is the parachute jump. Mm-hmm. When it was well, just they, funny, they, they do it. A- uh, they do it in the like quote unquote sex scene because they pan to the fireplace yeah. and then they kind of fall into the frame. So you know it's no longer chase to show that yeah. fireplace, and then they pan over and there's another fireplace. Um, <laughs> so really, rule of threes. They, they yeah, they really should have had one more. But uh, yeah, I think like I said earlier, I think this one treads a really fine line for me, and I think it's still obviously it still works. Um, and I think it works on the performances and the gags and the commitment to the gags. But yeah, it's, I think this one is very close to being one of those that just, is just too all over the place to be, to be a good parody, a uh, good spoof. So yeah, I think this is a, a really interesting one to study because, because I think ultimately it comes out being a good piece of spoof, good, good parody, Yeah, but it is, it, you can see the potential there for it not being and then for me i think i don't think the blue lagoon reference works i get it i personally get it yeah. like i know what blue lagoon is but and I obviously agree, i agree with you at the time it was one of the bigger movies of recent years uh and i think it's 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 not awful it doesn't feel as jarring as some of those later scary movie vignettes because it does still help the plot you know what plot there is um but it's it feels unnecessary and it it does feel a yeah. little jarring. We we've already in this movie we've already bought into the conceit of like all right we're mixing Elvis movies with espionage movies. So when they do cut back and forth between the two, we're like okay this is the conceit of this film. And then when they're like here's the third one we're gonna throw at you is this extended Blue Lagoon sequence. It's just like okay now this is this is too much. So 
all I have for alternate universe cast is uh, there were three dog actors who were hired for the bookstore sequence. Okay. And <laughs> uh, if you can picture the bookstore sequence, technically what happens is the dog is kind of revealed at the end and he like backs away from his food bowl. What that translates to in a shooting day is the dog had to enter the scene, cross the set, go to his food bowl and at the beginning of the scene and then eat for the rest the of the scene. scene right so yeah. they spend a lot of money getting three dog actors on set they shoot 17 times they get about to take 15 and all three of the dogs are so full that none of them are even motivated by food anymore and none of them will cross oh, wow. the set to go to their food bowl so the production designer peter lamont had his dog like on set and he said he'll do it he's always hungry so the dog that ends up in the film <laughs> is a non-trained dog actor that they just set loose and he walked across and, and ate the food out of the bowl. <laughs> so speaking of the bookstore scene, moving into film facts, uh, the cast that was taken of Peter Cushing's face in order to make the, we didn't even oh, discuss yeah. the prosthetic. The eye, uh, the, the, where the joke great. is he's looking through a magnifying glass. So it looks like he has a giant eye and then he puts it down and he does have a giant eye. So they had to take a, a cast of his face in order to create that prosthetic. That cast was held in archives at Pinewood Studios in London. And that was the cast that was used to map out the digital model of Peter Cushing that was used in Rogue One. No, it was not. So for better or for worse, That's if we didn't have insane. top secret, we wouldn't have uh, the the much often hated uh, digital yeah. portrayal of Peter Cushing in Rogue One. So the German in this film is a combination of gibberish some Yiddish <laughs> and some German words spoken at random. Uh, an example, a lot of Yiddish was used in this film. So when the waiter approaches Nick's table in the big ballroom sequence, he greets him with a Yiddish phrase that roughly translates to go take a shit in the ocean. Uh, <laughs> oh, there's a phrase for that. <laughs> a lot of the, a lot of the, if there is actual German spoken, it's just kind of noticeable, you know, a lot of times the joke is them throwing out German words, uh, especially in that in the early scene when he's listening to a tape where you can hear them saying things like Wiener Schnitzel and whatnot. And then the, the translation yeah. has nothing to do with it. Um, but there are some real German phrases used for comedic effect for German viewers. Like one time a German officer is barking an order at another soldier that translates to I love you, honey. Uh, <laughs> On to my favorite performer in the film. The cow actor refused to walk with boots on. Uh, so the soles of the boots were had were cut out. And then the, the, the I guess, legs of the boots oh, had yeah. to be attached to her legs with Velcro so that her hose would touch the ground. And then she would walk if her hose were touching the ground. She just didn't like her hose not touching. That's smart. The, uh, the miniature set that was populated with mice... Uh, that scene mm -hmm. when Hillary is escaping the opera was actually a set built for the Superman movie. The uh, oh wow, Zaz came across it, stored at Pinewood Studios, and thought it would be fun to include it and work that into the film. All right, do you have any story questions? For <laughs> I have a few. I have a few. Okay, is Nigel a Scientologist? Oh, where'd that come from? Well, because Nigel says he's talking about the works of like when he get when he gets up the lagoon. Oh, he's yeah. like uh, he's like he's like I studied the works of Lennon, this L. Ron Hubbard, this person, <laughs> and I was like. I was like, is Nigel a Scientologist maybe, here? Maybe. I was like, okay, that was that maybe was that's who rescued him on, out on the was Scientologist was the, on the, the boat. was Sea Russian Scientologist. Um, that was one one question. This might be anything that worked, but so it, it, it felt like an odd jump him going from 
being on the firing squad to him performing somewhere. Mm. Like, where was he performing at? at that? Because it's not the festival. The festival's supposed to be later, which we never go back to. Yeah, that's a good point. Because it's just he's just performing somewhere for, for kids, it feels like. Yeah, maybe that's something that ended up on the cutting room floor. Yeah, so those are kind of my two... I think big questions in terms of like actually in the movie that that is not answered or could be answered from that. I mean, do do Hillary and 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 Nick get married? I mean, what's Nick's career after this? That's that's the, <laughs> what's Nick's career? What's Nick's career? Maybe he's got some songs to write about his experience. You know? Yeah, some, some spy I mean, songs. I mean, again, I mean, uh, I wonder. If this is, this is like Elvis's stint in the military because Elvis did go to Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh in his military two years or whatever. So I wonder if like, he's about to go on his like movie career. Like Elvis, Nick is start acting. He's going to release one like good album that critics are going to hate. Cause like, Oh, you're not being you Elvis. You're being too smart. Um, and then he just makes a bunch of just beach movies. You know, you know what I want to hear? I want to hear Nick rivers pet sounds. <laughs> is he going to his Brian Wilson face? And uh, yeah, he's he gets a bad manager because his manager dies. Yeah, his manager dies. His manager does, does, definitely does, dies. Does he does does he get Paul Giamatti as his manager? Is what ends up happening. I honestly, I I don't know if there is a better line in this movie than Nick. I've talked to the German consulate, the UN, the American embassy, and I just can't get my <laughs> wife to orgasm. <laughs> Again, comes out of nowhere. Yeah. And then, and, then, and it's like, oh yeah, he he just had a smile on his face like after he died or whatever. <laughs> after he, <laughs> it's just the delivery is perfect as he comes in and, and yeah. Nick stuck in I jail and you're like, oh, he's telling you all the things he did to get Nick out of jail, and it's like, nope, classic redirect. All right, so we're bringing back an old award category that we haven't had in a while. It's the uh, the Paul Williams Award for best song. Oh. Okay, hold on. All right, you got skeet surfing. Yeah, you've got the the Macy's the Macy's version yeah. of Are You Lonely? Of Are You Lonesome? Oh, no. Are You Lonesome Tonight? Yeah, yeah. You've got uh, How Silly Can You Get? Yeah. Uh, you've got Straight in the Rug at the Pizza House. Yeah, the Pizza House. Yeah. You've got his his Tutti Frutti, mm-hmm. and you've got his uh oh, what's the other one he does for the for the kids? I think it's Spend This Night with Me. Spend Is that this, that's yeah, the one I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Spend This Night with Me. I think it's between two two of them. I think it's between his Tutti Fruity performance or Skeet Surfing. Mm. And I'm leaning towards Skeet Surfing because that's an original song. I think Skeet, I mean, it's, it's a parody. I think Skeet Surfing's the best song. I think his 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 kind of Elvising of it all. I, I you know, want to pay respect to his performance. But yeah, Skeet Surfing is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I think yeah, I think I think that's. And also, just it, like now, it has a it ha- definitely has a weirder vibe now. In <laughs> yes, day. yes, yes, true. When they're um, talking about like going to school with it, like it's 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 odd. But yes, for, I think as for anyone just, not aware of the skeet or clay pigeons that are shot uh, via shotgun in a recreational yeah. gun shooting competition, recreational sense. Yes, more people these days might be familiar with the the little John meeting than. Uh, <laughs> yes um but uh yeah i think that just for originality to take to take that beach boys there because it's interesting beach boys 
Brian Wilson them because like there's there's a trend on TikTok now with the with the with the Beach Boys song that's yeah uh, the the uh, yeah <laughs> make boots with the fur sound like a Beach Boys song yeah uh, yeah at bomb jeans like it, it's it's like and it's done it's really it's done really well and I'm just like that just shows you the genius of Brian Wilson in my opinion mm-hmm. and also Chuck Berry because there's also Chuck Berry stuff and and uh and surf and surfing USA I think um but the, the how like it can like transcend just out like outside of their era into something else both in this and their current current sense yeah um so yeah i would would go with skeet surfing skeet surfing for me if everybody had a 12 gauge and a support too you see them shooting and surfing all right beatrice straight award for actor or actress with limited scenes that kills it i want to say peter cushing i back i back peter cushing except let me let me say one more the cow <laughs> oh man you're really fighting for the cow. the cow she just she just turns in a fantastic performance she really is acting like she has two people inside her steering her and you know what oh kudos okay, to her okay let, let me let me let me break this down this way i'll side with you on the cow simply because i think i like peer cushing a lot in his scene based on how they shoot the scene mm-hmm. and, and kind of the conceit of the scene. I don't know if, if his performance, his performance, his performance doesn't carry that scene. It's how they do the scene. The cow <laughs> is based on performance. Yeah. So we'll go with the cow. All do, right. Does, does the count, does she have a name? Do we know the cow's know. name? Is that in the credits? <laughs> oh, if it wasn't the credits, who knows if it's right? It might be uh might be a joke as well. Daisy. Her name is Daisy. Daisy. Yeah. Congrats. I'm absolutely certain that you are no longer alive, but you won <laughs> the Beatrice Strait Award. <laughs> All right. The Annie Potts X Factor Award for supporting actor or actress that is the most memorable. This is actually a tough one because I really. Who do you have here? I'm at. Who I, do you have here? I, the name slipping my mind, which which doesn't doesn't bode well for for how much I enjoy this performance, but um the the manager oh martin martin Mm -hmm. billy j mitchell billy j mitchell i think he's got some of the best jokes in the film like i said the the i spoke with the un line is amazing i absolutely love the um the making fun of the trope of like the disembodied voice when you're reading a letter and just walking up with the megaphone um Uh, yeah, I think he's great. I, I I really really love his stuff, and I'm I'm sad when he dies in the movie. He's in. Uh, yeah, I, I I'll go with him because he. You know, he's also in. Because I, hmm. I thought I'd seen him before. He's in uh, Last Crusade. Oh, he's the one who like first approaches him into taking the job. Is that him? Doctor Doctor Mulbray. Yeah, Doctor Mulbray yeah. is his name. He's in Roger. Who framed Roger Rabbit? He's in uh, Superman. Return that some of these are uncredited roles. He's in Return of the Jedi. He's in Golden Eye. 
and Malcolm X. He 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 was in some big movies. He right. Passed away sadly at, at 56, 57 in 1999, but he was in he was uh British based. He was he was American actor based in the UK. Is what it was. I was also in Haunted Honeymoon. Shout out. Yes, Haunted, Haunted Honeymoon. Honeymoon. Underrated Gene Wilder film. Nick. I've tried everything. The embassy, the German government, consulate. I even talked to the UN ambassador. It's no use. I just can't bring my wife to orgasm. Gee, that's a shame, Martin. Have you tried one of these? (sighs) Well, thanks. I'll give it a whirl. Finally, the Gene Hackman MVP award for the person who carries this movie. It's Val Kilmer, hands it's down. It's Val Kilmer. No like, competition. You can't it's even Val argue Kilmer. that it's Zaz because they've like said since then, like, I can't believe I can't believe Val Kilmer pulled this off despite what we gave him. <laughs> he nails the comedy of it, but he also just he, he makes he makes he makes a character out of nothing. Is mm-hmm. this kind of the thing. He makes the character interesting with there's when there's nothing really there. And and despite it's it's if you take this combined with him following it up with uh, real genius it's like it's kind of wild that he talks about you know how uncomfortable he kind of was with the comedy in this but he's yeah. obviously comfortable with comedy with by the comedy. time he does real genius like yeah it's it's so apparent by that point and and so you know in this one it works that he is playing it straight but by the time he gets to real genius he's he is like full-on like that's like bill murray mode you know that character he plays in yeah that, like that like cool, funny mentor character is is classic Bill Murray territory. He's Bill Murray and meatballs, basically, yeah. is what he is. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. When I was about six years old, my mama took me on a trip to the city. We went to one of those big old department stores, and I got lost. They tried to page you, but the PA system was on the fritz. I never saw my mama again. Some people from the cosmetics department fed me a bowl of soup and some bread. The days stretched into weeks. One February, they got pretty jammed up during the semi-annual Lincoln's birthday sale, and they asked me to help out in preteen maternity. Then one day, I overheard a conversation in personnel about them needing a new jingle for their radio ad. So I picked up my guitar, and I wrote down a tune that had been mulling and creeping and crawling around in my head. Final questions. Oh God! I'm only I'm only gonna ask you for Nick Rivers. We don't we don't need anybody else. But who's who's our who could do Nick Rivers today? How old how old is Kilmer at this point? I think it was twenty five. Kilmer twenty five. Who's like a? Is it Timothy Chalamet? Is that who <laughs> no. it is? No, <laughs> no. Loved love Timmy, but no. I love fingerling potatoes. Um. <laughs> <laughs> um Someone who pops out of me, I think he, he's too old though, because because Kilmer's twenty five. A younger Chris Pine, I think, would kill this role. Mm. Yeah, hands down. He kind of played this character in Wet Hot American Summer. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He did. A little bit younger, I could see Alden Ehrenreich. <laughs> you like bringing Alden Ehrenreich and stuff. Dude, I love it. The 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 uh, Hell Caesar. He's the Hell, Hell Caesar, Caesar. The five minutes of him and and. Uh, <laughs> Him and Rafe Vines and Hail Caesar is like perfect comedy. Uh, is it? Well, is it Taron Ed- Egerton? Oh yeah, that's true. Is Taron I think Egerton he'd be up for it for sure. He, I think he would be good 
for for I mean he's he's already done the musical stuff. He's done a Rocket Man. He's good at comedy. He does espionage with Kingsman. I think that that's that's the wheelhouse right there. I think mm. maybe not. Like, maybe maybe, we'll, maybe we'll just have to wait to see how this Elvis movie plays out. Maybe uh, maybe this. Oh one. yeah, <laughs> Austin Butler. Austin Butler. Is Tom is Tom Hanks gonna be Martin? Is what it is. <laughs> Tom Hanks delivering the line. <laughs> I don't know who our modern day Val Kilmer or, is, or or do you just go with the unknown because yeah. because that's what he was. He was go, this is a daily film. Go kick around Juilliard and see what turns up. So does this? This is a tough one, but does this film fit with any other genres other than parody films? Um, I don't think it does personally. It doesn't like, it, commit making, hard enough to. It doesn't. It doesn't commit hard enough to either genre of Elvis or or musical. And it doesn't commit to espionage mm-hmm. as much as it could. I think if it had if it, if it had a better structure to it, um, I think weirdly I think there's more love for Elvis genre in this movie. There is espionage. Mm-hmm. I think the espionage feels just kind of very thrown together. It's like we need something here, like Cold War espionage. When the Elvis stuff feels more loving, but it doesn't. Like I said, it doesn't doesn't choose what it wants to be and then it has a lot of other stuff in it too that makes it like an old hollywood movie in some way like it's parodying old hollywood films or it's also like an action movie if it's because there's also it feels like kind of rambo stuff in certain moments too mm-hmm. like there's the there's the torture sequence that he has or whatever that feels like it's rambo like having flashbacks to when he's tortured in vietnam mm-hmm. so like it's a lot of stuff so i don't i think it just purely fits in that parody category is what it would be yeah yeah Agreed. So, so we've we've touched on this a few times, but bringing it all home, how does this film specifically fit within our our parody genre? It's 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 kind. Of, it's a very interesting study because it is that it walks the tightrope of a loving tribute of specific genres or films to being what's the topical thing we're making fun of right now, mm-hmm. movie wise and culturally, and. So because of that, it's it's one that I think like you said it works because that because it has all the tropes of of following the kind of types of characters that are there, the types of choices like, oh, it's we're having a festival to do this that he's going to perform at the tropes of like the rock star, American rock star type thing character um, and the tropes of kind of a Cold War, like building towards this trying to break into this kind of specific uh place to to break someone out to break the 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 german scientist out Mm. but uh yeah i I wouldn't put it in the category of say holy grail and some of the top ones but i would say it's 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 a it's a it's a gem within the genre yeah that i think is worth discovering yeah and I, i think the the defining trait of it and what kind of gets it its spot in parody film history is the commitment to sight gags yeah. I, don't, I don't think yeah. anyone else has really gone this creatively from a technical standpoint as far as really pulling off the things that they think are, are funny from the, you know, making that other train with the train station on it so it could pull away to the, you know, just making that backwards scene work to the underwater fight sequence. I think that that's what kind of earned it its spot in parody film history is that whether or not these guys really had a solid script, they had some really, really good ideas 
for some sight gags and they executed them spectacularly. And, and so is it the strongest of it's probably the weakest of the ones we're going to talk about this month, but it's, it's got a couple of things that, that really, really make it stand out. And I don't think any of these modern ones that we've kind of looked down upon, I don't see any of those having the commitment to a singular gag in the way that this, this movie does. I agree with that completely. I I think it, uh, I think it, like you said, I think it does that more. I, I, I compare it to Holy Grail. Holy Grail has side gags or whatever, but not to this extent where like it becomes like the main aspect of of the film outside of a performance of Kilmer. Um, it, it is what kind of makes it so unique within the genre. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Anything else you have to say about uh? Top secret. That's on top secret. I I did not expect for us to ever cover this movie on the show. If I'm honest. <laughs> I, I wasn't expecting it, but I'm happy we did because it made me appreciate it more in my second viewing. Good, which good. Can ha- can happen. Can always happen. Um. So we're talking about espionage movie, a, a espionage parody this week with Top Secret, but we're also next week going to be talking about another spy parody, and that is Austin Powers International Man of Mystery. This will fit more in line with the parody of James Bond. This is more, not really, not really Bond. You have the opening with Bond's uh, Omar Sharif, mm-hmm. but it's not very Bond heavy in Top Secret. It's no. just more Cold War, Cold War thriller, uh, and Elvis, Austin Powers, very heavily Bond in the thir- Thunderball, like those type era of Bond films. So that's next week, and then we'll finish it off with Mel Brooks after that but that's all I have for this episode if you're a fan of the show or our new listener make sure you subscribe to the Nation Podcast so you stay up to date on all of our new episodes subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts Spotify Google Podcasts Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast and if you haven't already make sure you write us a review on whatever platform you listen to the show on like we said last week it's a new year you're checking a lot of things off your list add you know add given given good reviews honestly not even part of the promo like a couple weeks ago i just sat down on yelp and thought about every business i enjoyed over the year <laughs> gave them a little review do the same thing for your podcast yeah not even just us do it for all the podcasts you listen to a lot of time effort you know hours of work every week and you can just give us just, one minute more of your i time. like it it is good i mean do more yeah. than that if you want to but uh, you know if you want to we'd whatever love whatever you have time five for. stars five stars doing that helps other people find us see us um and we hope you're enjoying the show and hopefully you can tell us that and finally don't forget to like us and follow us on facebook twitter instagram tiktok all that jazz thomas as always thank you for joining me thank you for having me and thank you all for listening hope you listen to more episodes soon bye